we're nearing the end of our study of the book of Acts, and the end is totally focused, the end of these, uh, this book, the end of these chapters, is totally focused on how Paul gets to Rome. And uh, <clears throat> what God is doing through this uh, kind of an amazing situation is you have opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for Paul to give a witness for Christ before some of the most powerful people in the Eastern Mediterranean. He had appeared, uh, he was in Jerusalem, had appeared before the Roman Tribune and the Jewish Sanhedrin and a variety of other things as they sought to kill him. He gets to Caesarea where the governor of the Roman province of Judea resided. He was before Felix and his wife Bernice. Um, now, um, this is a new governor, the Felix really, I don't know if I told you that, Felix was a very incompetent governor. He was not respected, uh, Rome didn't trust him, and so he basically was more or less booted out. And the new governor, Felix, excuse me, Festus, uh, is now in office. And he, uh, it, the, the year is now about A.D. 60. We, it's really, it's right in the crossover, uh, the way Rome kept its dates, the way we keep our dates are just a little bit different. But it's in that crossover between A.D. 59 and A.D. 60. So it's probably very early A.D. 60. I don't know if that means anything to you, but just to keep it, because we are pretty certain when it is. And so what he has done is he, uh, he, Festus, has gone down to Jerusalem to meet with the Jewish Sanhedrin and so on. Um, he was not interested in their plan. And so what we see is he goes back to, Ces their plan was to, why don't, why don't you send Paul to us and we'll take care of him here in Jerusalem, which is another way of saying we'll murder him. And Festus is not interested in that. And so verse 8, uh, I, wanna, I really want to start with verse 6 because that gives us the context. Now we're back in Caesarea, and Festus is the governor. And it tells us in verse 6 that he's on the seat. The Greek word there for seat is bema, B-E-M-A. That's a very important New Testament word because that seat is the seat of justice that the governors of the various provinces throughout the Roman Empire, uh, when we're in uh, Corinth, we, uh, we read about that in, in 1 Corinthians. When we're in the book of Acts in, the, in Corinth in the second missionary journey, we read about Galileo sitting on uh, the Bema seat. Well, he is sitting now on the seat of justice in Caesarea and ordered Paul to be brought. <clears throat> when he had arrived, the Jews who come down from Jerusalem stood around him bringing many and serious charges against him that they could, and this is really an important statement of Luke, remember Luke's the writer, that they could not prove. So these are, an actual legal term is conjectures. There's no proof. Now, verse 8. Paul argued in his defense. Now, these, uh, in almost all, if not every one of your translations, will have this in quotation marks. This is what Paul says. Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. The Greek word there for offense is hamartan. That's one of the New Testament words for sin. Hamartia, 
is the New Testament, one of the most widely used New Testament words for sin. Now, it's not how he's using it. He's, he's using the word offense. Because hamartia, when God is the subject, is that's an offense against God. But he's saying, I have not had an offense against the law of the Jews, which would be the law of Moses, and everything their civilization stands for, against the temple, the religious center of the nation, nor against Caesar. Why did you bring that up? Because he's a Roman citizen. Yeah, that's right. He's a Roman citizen. He's before a Roman governor. So, I mean, he wants to make sure that the Roman governor, uh, in this case Festus, understands that he's not guilty of sedition against the empire. So Paul's being, uh, I mean, he's being very comprehensive in his defense. <clears throat> and, and possibly, we, we don't know this for sure, but possibly what Luke has done here, the historian writing this, is he's distilled all Paul said down into one sentence. Paul may have gone into detail in each one of these three categories. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Do you follow me? He may have just distilled this down to one sentence, that he defended himself in three areas, and which was really important to do that. Now the response of Festus, verse 9. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Whoa. What a loaded question. At one level, which in in a sense is a pragmatic level, it might make sense because it's getting it out. Much much of this issue is about Jewish law and stuff. And let the Sanhedrin handle it. It's their issue. But at another level, and as the text says, he's playing into the hands of the Jews. Paul, don't you think it'd be a good idea if you go to Jerusalem and let them put you in trial? Paul said... Yeah, please. I mean, really, is it? Is he Paul's getting? What? Yeah, I mean, as Paul's incredulous with this, but how he responds is again, as we had talked earlier last week, I think. Here, here you see the shrewdness of Paul. He's being very careful, being very measured, but he is insisting on his due process rights as a Roman citizen. I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong as you yourself know. Very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. The right of provocito. That's the Latin. The right of provocatio. He has that right as a Roman citizen. That's an extraordinary due process right. It would, now not exactly, but it would be comparable 
to an appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States. In the United States of America, the final court of appeal is the Supreme Court. In the Roman Empire, the final appeal was a personal appeal to the Caesar. Now, at this time, who's the Caesar? Do any of you know? It's Nero. So, you know, that, <laughs> you know, I don't know how much Paul would have known yet, because Nero's not yet in his wild phase. That's coming up. But nonetheless, I mean, he was, he's really an unusual man, unusual Caesar. But Paul is uh, exercising his due process right as a role. Did you have a question, John? Well, Festus says, are you, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem? Uh, and I guess the implication is there, if, they, if he agreed to go to Jerusalem and he was found guilty, then he couldn't appeal at that time? Or did he just sense... No, that's that a was, Jewish court. That's a Jewish court. But, no, but that's, that's Jewish. That's a, they deal with Jewish law issues. That's not what the Caesar deals with. That's why Paul said, I'm before Roman tribunal, Caesar's tribunal. And he ought to be tried right there. Yeah, I am tried here. Not up in and Jerusalem. if you're not going to deal with it, I appeal to Caesar. Okay. The, I mean, the other side of this, too, is Paul is leveraging this right he has as a Roman citizen because he knows, and Festus knows as well, if Festus lets him go down to Jerusalem, he's going to be killed on the way down there. He'll be assassinated. By whom? By those guys who took that vow in the previous section that we studied. So, I mean, this is a, uh, for Paul, this is a no-win situation. The only, the only possibility he had, I mean, he's just, he's not doing anything um, that's not spiritual here. I mean, you know, shouldn't he be willing to accept a martyr's death? Well, no, not, not really, because he's, he is facing a situation where a whole bunch of trumped-up charges by the Jewish Sanhedrin are before him. They want to kill him. And this milquetoast Roman governor is unwilling to do what he should do, which is treat him like a Roman citizen and put him on trial. Or at least here, I mean, he, he just won't do any of that because he said, I have not done anything as an offense against Caesar. That's my defense. And, and he may have... As, as I said, Luke's probably summarizing this in one sentence. And Festus is just willing to take it. He doesn't want to deal with this. He just doesn't want to deal with it. And he's still, he's new. He's only been in, in power a few months. And he knows the most important thing for him to do as governor of Judea is get on the good side of the Jewish leadership. That's the most important thing for him to do. And if he can't do that, he will not be the Roman governor of Judea very long. So, I mean, not in any way defending Festus, but you understand the dilemma he's in. And Paul's right in the center of all this. And so Paul is doing what is a wise thing to do. He's playing everybody against one another, and if the governor won't deal with it, then I appeal to Caesar. It's my right as a Roman citizen. And beside, God told me I'm going to Rome. 
And now I figured out, not to be presumptuous, but I think I figured out how God's going to get me there. So I appeal to Caesar. So, you're, you know, when uh, we're going through difficult situations, we don't lose our spiritual beliefs or our God-given ability to think that God has provided. Uh, and he had a belief behind him, but he was still using his mind and a sense of direction here. I mean... Is it responsible, reasonable, biblical, and spiritual to insist on your due process rights as a citizen? Sure. Yes. In other words, you might say, well, the spiritual thing for him to do would just lay down his life in Caesarea. Well, first of all, remember, God said you are going to Rome. That's the first thing to remember. And the second thing to remember is Paul does this over and over again. He's in a situation. He plays the different groups off of one. Remember when he was before the Sanhedrin? Remember what he did? He knew that the Pharisees and Sadducees disagreed on what issue? The resurrection. So he brings up the resurrection, and immediately they're fighting each other, and Pharisees, in an audacious declaration, say, we find nothing wrong with this man, which just blew everybody away. And so, I mean, Paul, I mean, there's nothing wrong. Jesus says in Luke 16, the children of light should be shrewd. The children of darkness are often more shrewd than the children of light. So, I mean, it's, I mean, that, you know, just, you have to work through all that in your own thinking. But Paul is being shrewd here, again, remembering that God said you're going to go to Rome. Now the question is, how's Festus going to respond to this? Verse 12. And Festus, who, when he conferred with his council, this is a concilium. This isn't a Sanhedrin. This isn't anything Jewish. This is his cabinet, to make it sound like an American situation. Answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. I mean, there, he, there was nothing else he could do. He had no other, he had really had no other option than to, okay, you have appealed to Caesar, you're going to Caesar. Now, we're, Caesar at this time, remember, Caesar, uh, uh, Nero, I should say, Caesar Nero, Nero became the Caesar in AD 54. He commits suicide in AD 68. We're almost in the middle of that reign of his. And at, those at this time, he's still a fairly, I hesitate to say it this way, but a fairly good ruler. Now, he's about to go off the cliff, <laughs> but he is, he's a fairly good ruler. Then, I mean, Rome's going to burn, and he's going to blame it on the Christians. He's going to start crucifying key lines. He lines the Appian Way with Christians being crucified. He just lines it. I mean, he becomes a brutal butcher. And finally, in AD 68, before he commits suicide, he will execute Peter and he will execute Paul. But we're not anywhere near there yet. So, we're, we're, as I said, we're about AD 60, early AD 60. 
Now, this is kind of in the middle of his rule. He's still a fairly stable ruler. So now Peter is going to, I'm sorry, Paul is going to go to Rome. Now he knows how he's going to go there. But there's one more thing that has to happen. Any questions? Would he actually get an audience with the Caesar? That's right. Personally? That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Was that true of all citizens, Roman citizens? It, no, it, remember, if you appeal to Caesar, and if it is legitimate, in other words, all things have occurred, and in this case, Festus has had a, quote, trial before him, he sat on the famous seat of the tribunal, and he just won't deal with it. He will not. He says, "Jewish issue. You you go you go to Jerusalem. No, I'm not going to Jerusalem. I'm appealing to Caesar. If you won't deal with it, I'm appealing to Caesar." And so uh, that was a legitimate part of the concilium. That the the uh, not the concilium, the um, the Codex of Roman Law. I forget the name of that thing. But the Codex of Rome, that was a legitimate reason. So yes, yes. And that really, that's confounding to me because an empire of about 100 million people, but remember, of that 100 million, a very small number of citizens. It wasn't even 10%. But still, 10% of 100 million is still a lot of people. But it, it, under certain strictures, you have to qualify to have that appeal. And Paul... Paul will qualify because Festus is going to send the appeal documents along with Paul to go to Caesar. I, I, I don't know enough, because my specialty is not law, I do not know enough about that appeal process in terms of what would an appeal to Caesar look like. What, I mean, what would you do there? Could you bring your own attorney to make kind of speaking like 21st century? But you could, you definitely have an audience with the Caesar. I do know this, it would sometimes take three years for the Caesar to make a decision. That means much more time. How long will Paul spend in Rome waiting for the Caesar? Two years. Hasn't changed much. Takes a lot. No, that's right. That's right. No, it hasn't. (laughs) Our founders wrote in that, uh, you know, they they speak of a speedy trial in the Bill of Rights. the 21st century defines speedy in a much different way than they defined it in 1787 when the document was written. Okay, was there, there any other question or comment? Now, there's one other thing God wants him to do, and I'm putting it from the sovereign perspective of the Lord, and that is Paul needs to appear for Herod Agrippa and his wife Bernice which is actually his half-sister. Now, when some days had passed, he's still, Paul's still in Caesarea, waiting to catch a ship up to Rome. Agrippa the king and Bernice, <coughs> excuse me, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Now, this is Herod I don't want to get you confused, but this is Herod Agrippa II, the son of Herod Agrippa I, the grandson of Herod the Great. I just confused you, didn't I? This is Herod Agrippa II, and he is um, 
He is a Jew. He is uh, well, sort of a half Jew, but he's in the line of Herod the Great. And he is the ruler of the region on which, in which Caesarea is in, in North Galilee. Not the whole Roman province of Galilee. So he comes down to Caesarea for a visit. He wants to have coffee with Festus. I'm making that up. But he comes down to have a, a, a meeting with Festus. Festus is the new governor. So Herod Agrippa II wants to meet him. As they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king. There is a man left prisoner by Felix. See, he's putting the blame on Felix. When I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the city laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. That's a wonderful verse of the due process rights of the Roman Empire. I mean, do you see? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's fair. That's a fair, just procedure. And Festus is saying, wait a minute, time out. I'm new. I'm new to Judea, but I'm not new to Roman law. What you're asking me to do violates Roman law and due process procedures. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but the next day took my seat on the tribunal, on the Bema, what we read about up in the verse 6, and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood him, stood him up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Whether, rather, they had certain points of dispute about their own religion and about this certain Jesus who is dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. What has Festus just told Herod Agrippa II? This is not a Roman issue. This is a religious issue. It's a religious issue that a bunch of Jews disagree about. You see, Herod Agrippa, I'm mean, sorry, Festus, you can just, the way Luke wrote this, Festus is just frustrated by this. Is it, yes, I'm on the job a few days, and this thing left over from Felix comes to my desk. And so I do all the due process rights. I bring, I bring the accusers up to Caesarea. I have them stand Paul and father charges and. It doesn't have anything to do about Roman law. It doesn't have anything to do about sedition against Caesar. It's about their religion and this guy named Jesus. Can you just sense the frustration? Being at a loss, I love this, verse 20, being at a loss of how to investigate these questions, how do I investigate a resurrection? And, you know, you can do that, but, I mean, you know, he's just frustrated. I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them, meaning the charges. 
But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the empire, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, meaning Festus, you will hear him. The man, this is a fantastic example of the sovereignty of God. Because now Paul, who just happens to be in Caesarea and inherited a group of the second and his wife, Bernice, who's really his half-sister, it's a messy, incestuous type relationship, comes down to Caesarea for a visit with the new governor. They're going to have coffee. Actually, they had more than coffee, but I'm making that up to neutralize the issue. It just so happens that this is the... This is what's on Festus's mind. And I think in back of his mind was, oh, I hope Herod Agrippa says, let me take it. <clears throat> and so Herod Agrippa says, let me talk to this guy. So he doesn't realize that if he's going to ask Paul to talk to him, what's Paul going to want to talk about? Jesus and the cross and the resurrection. He's not going to be particularly want to talk about the nuances of Roman law or the nuances of Jewish law. He's going to want to talk about Jesus. But Herod Agrippa II doesn't know that. What a great opportunity to be a witness. Verse 23. It's time for me to take a sip of this coffee or it's going to be cold. So <laughs> that's God's will that I do that. So I yeah. want to make sure. Can I ask a question? Oh, sure, absolutely. Felix and Agrippa, is there a... Do you mean Felix or do you mean Festus? Festus and the Grove. Yeah. I mean, was there, uh, which one was the hot dog? Uh, what was the relationship? Well, now, in terms of personal relationship, there is none. But in terms of how, Authority or... how they, yeah, that's a great question. How, let, let's ask it this way. From Rome's vantage point, how would they look at these two guys? Festus is more important than Herod Agrippa. And yet, practically, from the Jewish perspective, Herod Agrippa II is more important than Festus. Herod Agrippa II's title is King of the Jews. Festus's title is Roman governor. Do you understand? From Rome's perspective, Festus is more important. From the Jews' perspective in the Eastern Mediterranean, Herod Agrippa II, because he's king of the Jews. And he treated the Jews well. They liked him. They really did. They liked him. He, he, for the most part, spoke well of them and tried to be their advocate, and somewhat successfully. Does that answer your question? But, but he was within the Roman hierarchy? Or, or outside? He is, uh, no, uh, well, that's a great question. He is where he is because Rome put him there. So in that sense, yes. But in terms of any official, you know, Roman position within the administrative structures of the empire, no, not really. But, I mean, he was there, and so it was his, his dad, Herod Agrippa I. He was there 
because Rome saw that as advantageous to have a mini Herod the Great there because Herod the Great was good for Rome. I mean, Herod, he was really good for Rome. They loved him because he really, he ruled with an iron fist. He was the great, provided the great buffer against the Parthian Empire to the east. He was really good for Rome. My, I have a lovely story. Can I tell you the story? Jer Herod built many homes in the eastern Mediterranean. He built one in, in Jericho. He built one in Masada. Of course, he had this Jerusalem. He built one uh, in the eastern desert across the other side of the Jordan River, the Rhodium, and others. But he's throwing this banquet in Jericho, his big palace up there. And uh, the top Roman military officers from the four legions of Syria, which is a little bit north, were there. And he throws this incredible banquet with all of the wines and all of the fish sauces. Fish sauces were a real delicacy uh, of the empire at that time. And at the end of the banquet, after they were all eat and drink and probably had too much to drink, he said to Herod, you know, King Herod, you are more Roman than Rome. You have to process that. But do you understand what he was saying? You represent Rome better than some of the people I know in Rome. You epitomize what the empire is all about. It was probably the greatest compliment he ever received from Rome. I mean, that is... And so Rome saw an advantage to have his... His grandson and his great-grandson there doing the same things to a degree, but not nearly as successful. Herod the Great forced the Jews to defer to him. Herod Agrippa I and Herod Agrippa II earned that deference because they were his advocate. They were their advocate. I mean, they really did. They appreciated what Agrippa I and Agrippa II did for them. All right, uh, can, can I keep going? Okay, where am I? Verse 23, so on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice, now remember, Bernice is his half-sister, his constant companion. This is an incestuous type of situation. It's complicated. But anyway, she's with him. With great pomp, oh, I wish I could take you there. If we go to Caesarea, this enormous theater outside that faces the Mediterranean. That's where they met. That's where all the public events. So this is where they are. In the audience hall, the military tribune, prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all are present with us. You see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me. There's a little bit of hyperbole there, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought to live, not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write my lord 
about him. The Greek word for Lord there is kurios. You put an L in front of it that is capitalized, that's the title of Jesus. Jesus is kurios. Now, can I tell you another bunny trail story? Mm-hmm. The first confession of the church is Jesus kurios. Jesus is Lord. The Roman Empire's confession is Caesar Curios. Caesar is Lord. That's what Festus is referring to. I have nothing definite to write, my Lord, the Caesar, about him. Therefore, I brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, that you, after we have examined him, I may have something to write. Will you help me write this letter to Nero? I don't know what to say in this grave. For it seems to me unreasonable you could translate that word absurd. It's not unreasonable. The word could be translated absurd. So let's do it that way. For it seems to me absurd in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Man, not only is it absurd, Caesar is going to be absolutely incensed and furious if you send a prisoner for personal attendance before him without the charges. He won't see him. I'm getting all excited here. So <laughs> it's just, so this is, from Festus's perspective is, I don't know what to do with this guy. So Herod Agrippa II and your lovely consort Bernice, your half-sister, and you have this incestuous relationship, with, would you put your heads together and please, please tell me what to do? Jim, I have a question. If I was reading this by myself, I would not know, I would not know that that was an incestuous relationship. I know you wouldn't. half-sister, unless I found it somewhere else. And uh, that's why you have a teacher. <laughs> so I'd be happy to go right on back and buy that. Just like that's his wife. Yeah. It's, uh, There's probably a lot of details like that that you share with us that probably isn't in here. It's somewhere else. Well, or it is referred to in another part of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is referred to in another part of Scripture. So, I mean, it, it's, uh, but it, it is, and when I know things or have learned things through my study that are extra biblical as a source, it adds to our understanding of what is really going on in the text. A lot of uh, these Roman governors and a lot about Nero and so on that uh, are, are just mentioned in the Bible, we have a tremendous amount of material on what they were like. What kind of a ruler was Nero? You can divide his rule into two parts, some pretty good, stable, and then some absolutely wild, nutty years, which ends in this. And I'm reading this, and I'm seeing the black on the white. <laughs> no, that's all right. That's why it's really good, and a couple of you have done here, Jim and, and Joel and others, to ask questions. Don't be afraid. I want you to understand. If you have a question about this, it is, uh, it is important to ask. <clears throat> uh, you know, we, I think, sometimes are reluctant to look at outside sources because they're not within the context of the cover of the Bible. And so what's the screening tools or thinking that you use 
to consider them to be valid sources of, of reference that really are consistent with what the Bible is telling us, or adds to, but not changing the actual facts up. Well, I mean, uh, there. Well, I mean, that's such a. I could answer that in so many different ways because I have studied this stuff for thirty-five years. So, I have, I have in my life, I've read dozens, 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 dozens of books that deal with a lot of these things in the ancient world. And you just learn from historians what is going on in the larger macro picture. That's very helpful. But most of us don't have that ability or luxury or training. So I think if a Christian is really interested in study, and even like Bernice, you go to a good Bible dictionary, look up Bernice. It's going to tell you everything we know about her, not only from the Bible, but from extra-biblical sources. Or the Zondervan Encyclopedia, I'm going to use that's another sort, just suggesting that. The Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Body. Look up Bible. Look up Bernice. It's going to tell you everything we know about her. You follow me? Uh, so now some of this now you can find out online. Now, you know, whenever WikiLeaks comes up, just be real critical about that. Because essentially WikiLeaks is one person who thinks it's God's calling on their life to write about this person. I'm being real cynical. And they may not be really, there's so many mistakes on WikiLeaks sites about people. But when you look up that person, there will be other sites. So just critically evaluate. If you have the Britannica online, that's a good source. You can really trust that. WikiLeaks or other sources. So did I answer your question, Fred? I don't know yeah, if I, I just, did. Because I think a lot of us um, that don't do research outside of this book may, may not know exactly how to approach it. And we want to approach it intelligently and safely in terms of having it be credible in relationship to if I'm in my office and I don't have a lot of time, the very first thing I go to with a name or a title is my Bible dictionary. J.D. Douglas, it's great. He's a, a British scholar, British, and he's very trusted. And I mean, I, I just go, and I know I can trust whatever his article says. And I mean, that's, that's a starting point. And, but if I have a lot of time, there are some other things I do. But... It's just, it depends on how much time you want to spend on it, how, much, how many cells you want to burn on it, brain cells you want to burn on it. But they're just, it's, it is really, and you made a really good point, make sure you have some sense of the reliability of your source. Because that's one of the real challenges of the Internet. I mean, I know you know that. One of the real challenges of the Internet. To do research by the Internet is not real good <laughs> at times. I mean, it depends on what you're looking for, but it really isn't always trustworthy because it brings up all of these wild sources as well as some good sources. And if you know the good sources, it's helpful. If you don't know the sources, it's really crap. You know, <clears throat> you know, I just think of uh, learning from you and and studying the Bible with you is uh, 
just I just don't know where I could get that anywhere else. I really cannot think of anywhere else that I could try to soak up some of the things you say. And and I really don't care about Bernice and that incestuous relationship. I just point out that that's one of the things that you have knowledge about that I didn't have, and that and that blesses us all because you can tell us the background story of it, because you read that biblical thing. Well, it tells you a little something about the ethical moral character of King Herod Agrippa II. Mm -hmm. Can I? Yeah, okay, Jim. This is not related to that. That's okay. I'm reading this very interesting book now by Tony Evans on Providence. Mm, Yes, very good book. And as I review or think about this whole process, Paul, Mm, circumstances, examines, Sovereign will to go to Rome. You just see God's providence Absolutely. play out step after step after step. And it just is it's encouraging personally to see that because I know it's occurring in my life too. Absolutely. That's exactly right. Man makes his plan, plan but God orders his steps. God's a providential God. Yeah, Tony Evans is good. He has this ability, these great phrases that he somehow dumps them out. You ever heard him interviewed? And talk? He just phrase after Why didn't I come up with that phrase? That's a great <laughs> phrase. It describes everything. You, you have a, a really interesting irony here. And, and let me, let me before we get into Paul's uh, speech, before Herod Agrippa II and Renee's, You have a a remarkable irony. You have a pagan nation protecting Paul from God's people, the Jews, who want to kill him. Isn't that irony? It's it's, it's amazing. That's God's providence. You have a pagan, immoral, idolatrous, power-hungry empire protecting Paul from his own people who want to kill him. Because if they didn't do that, you know the Sanhedrin would have killed Paul a long time ago. That's providence. Now Paul's defense. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand, it must be something like this or whatever, and gave his defense. The Greek word for defense is apologia. What, what, what word do we get from that? Apology. Yeah, apology, making an apology defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews, therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently. And I mean, that would be true. He lived there, his dad lived there, Herod, I mean, all of that. They've been among the Jews. So you're familiar with all this stuff. My manner of life from my youth and spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And I now stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, 
I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now, I want you to notice something about the first aspect or part of his narration. In verse 4, my own nation. Verse 5, our religion. Verse 7, our 12 tribes. Paul identifies in every way with what is important to the Jews. I am a faithful Jew. And I believe something that the prophets believed, that God raises the dead. Why is it so incredible to believe that? Because remember, you go back all the way to Jerusalem when Paul stood before them a couple chapters ago. That was the issue that got him in trouble when he brought up the resurrection. So, I mean, isn't this fantastic how he's doing this? He distills all this down. I'm a faithful Jew, and they'll tell you this. I was a Pharisee. I come from a faithful Jewish family. We identified with the 12 tribes that conquered Canaan. And I believe in the prophets who taught that God raises the dead. Why is it so incredible to believe that God raises the dead? If I were here at Agrippa, I'd stood up and said, Paul, you're right. You don't have to go to Rome. But that's not what happened. But time said, okay, we're in good shape. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in the synagogues. I tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In connection with this, I returned, excuse me, I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice to me in the Hebrew language, or it could be Aramaic, the dialect of Hebrew. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is It is hard for you to kick against the goad. Paul's adding something unique here, a proverb. I read that to kick against the goads. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> but in the Proverbs, it means you cannot resist the will of God in your life. It is hard for you to resist the will of God in your life. And I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Rise, stand up your feet, for I've appeared to you for this purpose, to point you a servant, witness to the things that you've seen me, and to those which I appear, which will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. Now this is Paul understanding of his three 
fivefold ministry to the Gentiles. Number one, verse 18, to open their eyes. Number two, so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Number three, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among all who are sanctified by faith in me. Simple message. Open their eyes, you're going to proclaim the truth. That they may turn from darkness to light, which is salvation. And they may receive forgiveness of sin. And place among those who are sanctified by faith. See what Paul is saying there? I have been a faithful Jew who believed one of the teachings of the peoples that I represented the Jews that God raises as dead. But I want to tell you something. If you want to be a completed faithful Jew, you have to accept Jesus as the Messiah. That's what I did. I stopped resisting him. I stopped kicking against the goad. <laughs> and I embraced him. And he's given me a ministry to the Gentiles to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, the kingdom of darkness over which Satan rules, to the kingdom of light over which Jesus rules, that they may experience forgiveness of sins so that they could be sanctified. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first those in Damascus, then to Jerusalem, throughout all the region of Judea, to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have held the thing that comes from God, so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing about what the prophets and Moses said should come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, that by being first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to the people and to the Gentile. And he was saying these things in his defense. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. You see, belief in the resurrection to a Roman, a Greco-Roman dualist, is insanity. They didn't believe that. So regardless of everything else Paul's saying, you're out of your mind to believe in the resurrection. But Paul said, verse 25, I want to finish this. Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, deferring to his position, deferring to his authority, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner, not been hidden. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And then Agrippa speaks. In short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul responds, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, a Christian, except for these chains. So there's other people that are hearing 
It's, I told you, it's in the theater. Thousands of people are there. This is a big public event for Herod Agrippa and Bernice to come up, or rather I should say to come down to Caesarea. This is like, you know, the Super Bowl. <laughs> Not quite, but it's like that. Just do one more thing. Just look at what happened. Then the king rose and the governor Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, <laughs> this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So what we learn is that Herod Agrippa II and Festus are convinced absolutely of his innocence. But what had God told Paul? You're going to Rome. And this is providentially how God's going to get him to Rome. You made the appeal. It's sealed. So once he's made that appeal, they can't. Yeah, yeah. Regardless of what they yeah. think. Because he made that appeal. Basically, Festus is Paul. That's right. I don't think Paul, I honestly, it, it's, it's just an interesting dynamic here where two things are playing, I think, in Paul's mind. What God had promised him and said, Paul, what, what is going on? He has given a legitimate defense, but more, in my perspective, more importantly, He's given a definitive witness for Christ mm -hmm. before very powerful people in the Eastern Mediterranean. And Agrippa says, in such a short time, you want me to become a Christian? Paul says, that's short or long. I want everybody that heard this to become a Christian. Only eternity will tell us of anybody, the thousands of people that were there that day became a Christian. Extra-biblical church tradition tells us many did. But it's you know not in the scriptures, so you can't quite regard it as absolute. But this is a fascinating day uh, in the life of Paul and in the life of the gospel. Paul, I'm not at all comparable, but in just only one level, Paul was able to speak to some of the most powerful people of the first century, just like Billy Graham was able to speak to some of the most powerful people in the world during his life. You know, he spoke to prime ministers and powerful people all over the world. And uh, Paul was able to do that. This is an extraordinary story of, uh, of Paul here. I just, I love that passage. It's just so neat. And Jim mentioned Tony Evans' book, but the providence of God is all over this particular narrative here. I mean, it's just incredible. None of this is just happening. I think... The shock value of Jesus appearing to Saul and, you know... Change his life. The rest of us have to learn it, read it, and learn it like that. But, you know, if Jesus come down right now and said, hey, you know, this is good stuff you guys are doing. <laughs> this is true. This is all true. If it's written, mm -hmm. written in red, that's me. Yeah. And then Paul begins that process of, of going through and rethinking all of his theology as a Pharisee, reprocessing it now. Jesus is Messiah, so what changes? Everything changes. That's why I think he's, I told you that before, I think he spent those 13 years reprocessing everything he believed and put his theology in order, which is what we see in the book of Romans. 
we see his organized theology in the Book of Romans. You don't come up with that in ten minutes. It takes you years to put something <clears throat> together. Well, men, uh, thank you. It's been a good day. We appreciate it, and we'll see you in uh, two weeks.